Thank you, worship team. We've been in a series walking through the New Testament letter called Ephesians. And there's no way for me to give you the full recap of where we've been over the course of the last month. But the great thing about digital technology is if you have missed any part of this series, you can go to our website. You can jump in on everything God has done. Because up until last week, I feel like the series paled in comparison to what happened last Sunday with Church at Home when my wife, Courtney Fidel, brought a word on grace it was so powerful, and if you, if you didn't experience that last week, you can look it up online, but this week, her devotional, Grace is Enough, came out, and the way you guys responded to that, particularly the women in our church who are gathering around the truth that, uh, that she's been able to compile in that devotional, it's amazing. We actually have it for sale at a discounted rate here today. And the cool thing about it is it's actually a 30-day devotional, and today's November 1st and a month with 30 days, and so it's a great day to start a new devotional. And I know there's a lot of men, a lot of guys who are looking at me like, well, what do you want me to do with the women's devotional? You're supposed to buy it and give it to someone. And, and I'm going to tell especially the younger services later today that if that didn't click in your head sooner, it might be why you're single. And so, whoa, yeah, well, okay, okay, we're going there. But I'm so excited about what Courtney was able to bring to our church last week. And I'm so excited about this devotional going out. It's been amazing to watch so many people respond to that. And if you missed out on all of that, I just love watching my wife step into the call of God for her life. Because honestly, for six years, she has felt no need and no call to say anything from the stage or really to even be a part of anything publicly. And she serves so well in our family, but God is just covering up that book and covering up even her ministry going out. So I love getting to be a part of that. This week is the reason why I chose to preach Ephesians during this season. I knew that Sunday, November 1st was going to come two days before Tuesday, November the 3rd. And I knew that we were going to be facing as divided of a presidential election as we've ever seen, which is hilarious that we say that because every four years we pretend like it was more divided than four years ago. And I love, I just love when it always gets raised up like this is the most divided our country has ever been. And I always like to remind people, I'm like, didn't we have a civil war? Like uh, that was a little bit more divided than what we are experiencing today. Nevertheless, I knew that this passage was going to land on this Sunday, and I feel like it's the exact perfect passage to preach into what's happening. There is an election going down this Tuesday. Who's excited? Any, any, no, not at all. You guys, you look like you literally want to bury your heads under the covers of your bed and go, just somebody get me up when it's over. Just tell me who wins, and we can just let this whole thing happen and... I do know that there's a little bit of an exhaustion with everything that's already happened in 2020, and it's like, oh, wow, this is just going to compile the pain on top of the pain on top of the pain. But I do feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect for Christians this week. I think a lot of us need to be equipped and empowered to make a big deal about Jesus in the midst of a system that is not built on Jesus, and so if you're a Christian and you're here today and you're going, this is really complicated to figure out not just how to vote, but what to say and how to relate to people who think differently than I do. That's exactly how you're supposed to be feeling right now, because this system was not built for Christians to thrive. This system was built in such a way to manifest fear on multiple different sides and see who can make the other side more afraid. 
And I'm not saying that because I'm not grateful to be an American. I'm very grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy. I'm grateful for the men and women who gave their lives so that I can hold this microphone now and say whatever God calls me to say. That's a freedom that not many countries enjoy. So you're not going to hear the progressive more, oh my gosh, America's terrible message from your pastor today because I don't believe that. And by the way, that's unbiblical and ungrateful. You're going to hear, I love the United States of America and the United States of America is broken. The United States of America is in a sinfully lost system, in a sinfully lost world. And you can actually feel those two different tensions together simultaneously. I want to equip and empower you to make a big deal about Jesus this week. And so, disclaimer from the very beginning, we will not be endorsing a political party or candidate. I will, some of y'all are laughing, like, but there's some people who want me to. Uh, I, we will not be, we will not ever do that. We'll not tell you how to vote. We're not going to tell you how to think because so many of these issues are more nuanced than a point blank statement or platform. There's a lot of conversation that goes into it. And I'm not going to be able to go into full detail that needs to be uh, delivered on a Sunday like this one. If you want more help than what I provide today, David Platt just came out with a great resource. If you don't know who David Platt is, he's a senior pastor of McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C. So he's got a lot more difficult task ahead of him today as he preaches in the middle of our nation's capital. But he wrote a book called Seven Questions Every Christian Should Answer Before They Vote. That's a lot more in-depth for how you, how you come to grips with your conscience and how you come to grips with how you lead your family and everything else that's going on. The disclaimer I want to give you today is my goal is not to tell you how to think or who to vote for or even give you any intuition into what I think or, or w- which way I bend. My entire goal and vision today is for you to participate this week as a citizen in the election. And when I say citizen, I do not mean a citizen of the United States of America. Because if you are a Christian within the sound of my voice, you have a citizenship that supersedes your citizenship to the United States. You are a citizen of heaven. You belong in the kingdom of God. And it is that allegiance that is going to guide the way you talk and the way you walk and the way you vote and the way you respond in your own internal peace this week. So the title of my sermon from Ephesians chapter 2 is Citizens of heaven citizens of heaven look at somebody next to you say i don't belong here i don't belong here some of you are funny watching you ignore the command of the preacher it's like no i've been coming here i almost called two people out no i've been coming here too long to have to respond to every single one of those okay you're a citizen of heaven you don't belong in this system Christians have a complicated relationship with government. When you read the New Testament, the New Testament calls us to submit to governing authorities. It calls us to honor authority. It calls us to pray for those who are in authority. And before you hear that and go, well, they don't know what our authority is like. They don't know how messed up this is. Keep in mind, the New Testament of your Bible was written to a church in a time period called the Roman Empire. The level of oppression and dictatorship and difficulty that these Christians were under 2,000 years ago is incomparable to what you and I face because of any level of tyranny or difficulty from Washington, D.C. It's laughable to compare the two, actually. And yet, Paul still calls Christians to submit to and pray for governing authorities. But a Christian's allegiance to the government always goes so far as that government doesn't issue any direct command that that mandates disobedience to the Bible. So as soon as we're underneath 
the dictatorship, or I would say the rule of a government that says, hey, you have to do this, and it's against what the Bible teaches you to do. We have a higher allegiance, and we stay faithful to the Bible, even if it means losing our lives. And Jesus managed this tension so well, y'all. You have to understand that in the Roman Empire, the way to trap Jesus 2,000 years ago and the way the Pharisees thought they ultimately succeeded was that they were going to use the power that was being abused in Rome and use the religious system of Judaism and run it against Jesus and see if he would break underneath the weight of it. And the key question that Jesus answered that forever changes how we relate to government is in Mark chapter 12 when Jesus was asked, what should we do about the taxes that we're supposed to pay Caesar? And when Jesus got asked this, the leadership of the time thought that they had totally trapped him because they were like, if he says we shouldn't pay the tax to make the Jews happy, then we can have the Romans kill him because they know he's an insurrectionist. He's leading a movement that's against them. But if he goes in the other direction and says we should pay it and stays faithful to Rome, then we'll know that he's an imposter and he doesn't stand for the people of God. So they thought he can't win in this system. That's where a lot of Christians are right now in America. And what was Jesus's answer? Brilliant. Only the Son of God answers like this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. He picked up a coin that had Caesar's image on it and said, whose whose picture is this? Whose image? Caesar's. Give to him what's his and give to God what is God's. You want to know what the people should have said in response to that? If, If Caesar's image is on that coin, then where is God's image? It's on humanity. And so we give to our local government our participation, our willing, cooperative citizenship, but we also give to God our hope and our souls and our everything as citizens of a higher kingdom. And I want you to see this. I want us to be united in the battle that matters most today. And I actually believe that when you read the word of God, you get freed up to participate in a system that's broken, but not lose your soul and not lose your peace. ACC, this is how we could stand out at the end of 2020. I know I told you at the beginning of this year that we were going to stand out. Remember that series, Grace Truth 2020? I talked about three issues that were going to define the next decade for the church. Sexuality, politics and racism, and anxiety and depression. Had no idea that a global pandemic was coming. I had no idea that racial tension was going to absolutely sweep our nation and the entire world. I had no idea all that 2020 was going to hold, but I did know that these issues were going to be spoken into. And if you can remember all the way back to January, I actually preached on Ephesians chapter two, and we're going right back to that diamond of a passage about how a church can be unified in the midst of so much division around it. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Come on, 9 a.m. You had an extra hour to grab your Bible. Hold it up. Hold it up high. Hold it up high. Yes, yes. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. So good. I feel like I need that that extra hour every weekend. It would be awesome. I got another level of energy to preach to you at 9 a.m. today. Do I sound different to you guys today? It's it's because normally when I preach, I'm overly prepared sat on this all week. I'm ready to go. But 2020 has caused me, especially in topics like this, to sort of try to grab words before they come out the wrong way. And I'm already finding myself just a few minutes into this message kind of curbing certain things that I'm saying, not in a way that ignores truth, 
But if you could, even in your heart and mind right now, just pray that I would say exactly what God wants me to say right now because we need this word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. If you haven't been following along, we've been saying that Paul wrote Ephesians to reconcile Jew-Gentile tension by illustrating unity with Christ. So this church is about to split. They're divided. The Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians cannot see eye to eye. They don't have as much in common as you would think. In fact, the racial tension that's there was stronger than any racial tension that you and I have experienced so far. Read your history. Trust me. Trust me. Jews and Gentiles ready to split up. And so what Paul's doing is he's illustrating the power of the gospel, but he's showing how the implications of the gospel are a church that is willing to come together no matter what the division looks like. So watch this. The whole letter has been building up to Ephesians 2 verse 11 where it says, therefore, what is it there? Therefore, in light of everything that Paul has said so far in Ephesians, here we go. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy people, a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I don't know of a more timely passage for what we're about to walk into this week. Paul's talking about being reconciled to God. And he says, Gentiles, remember, you were aliens. You were strangers. You didn't have citizenship with God's people. But God has reconciled you to himself. But just as God reconciled you to himself, he also reconciled all of humanity to become one new humanity. And the purpose of Jesus goes beyond simply reconciling people to God. The purpose of Jesus extends to reconcile people to each other. This is a beautiful thing. And Paul says it like this. He says, remember that at that time, verse 12, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. So Paul is having them remember this, not to humiliate them, but to humble them. And his whole purpose in humbling these two groups in the truth of the gospel is that their humility would create a heart posture that's willing to be unified. And so if you remember at the beginning of 2020, this was the truth that we talked about when we talked about politics and racism. We'll put this on the screen. Relational unity begins with gospel humility. Relational unity begins with gospel humility. You don't have a relationship reconciled until you have the light of the gospel shining through it. And so Paul's going, listen, you can't receive a love like that from God and not extend a love like this to your neighbor. 
That's why later in Ephesians, he'll say, forgive others as Christ in God has forgiven you. So when you read that verse, you go, okay, I've got this forgiveness from God that affects the way I treat people. That's exactly what Paul's pointing out here. He's going, the humility that comes from being welcomed in as a child of God has to have an extension in and through it that affects the way you relate to other people. And the only hope I believe we have for unity this week in the church is to have a level of humility in light of the gospel that says, you know what? I care about our government and I care about politics and I care about the future of this country, but not as much as I care about being a unified body of believers that exists for the glory and fame of Jesus first and foremost. And when you have that level of humility, you have a shot at unity. Look at this, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This is huge. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he destroyed the wall between us and God. But Paul's talking about a different wall being destroyed in Ephesians 2, and he says he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. That language, look up here, don't miss this, that language points to the tabernacle or the Jewish temple where Gentiles, people who weren't by birth related to Abraham, they were only allowed to go so far and no further. And there was a gate on the outside that they're calling, Paul's calling the wall of hostility. And it was the wall of hostility because it was a place where Jews felt elite and Gentiles felt excluded. And so the Jews were able to go, we're going in because we're on the inside. We get to go into the presence of God, which is kind of funny that they would be arrogant about that because only the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies and all the way to the center of the tabernacle. They were still excluded from access to God. But here's the thing. When Jesus died on the cross, what does scripture say? It says that the veil was torn. The veil was torn and people are given access to God. Now, every time I talk about the veil being torn, people get all excited and we sing about it in songs like the veil was torn in two. We get access to God. Here's what's hilarious about that. You're a Gentile, most of you. And even though the veil was torn, that doesn't give you and I access to God because we're still behind the wall of hostility. We're not allowed in there. So Jesus didn't just die to destroy the veil between us and God. He also died to destroy the wall between us and us. And when that wall gets destroyed, now all people are allowed into the presence of God. Now, you, so you don't get oneness with Jesus without oneness in the church. They're one and the same. And because Jesus destroys that wall, the church has a shot at unity. The night before Jesus died in John chapter 17, he said, this is how they're going to know. This is how the world is going to know who I am. And they, my followers, are going to be one, just as we are one. He's praying to his father. Do you know Jesus' method for the world knowing who he is is the church's love for one another, even when they disagree and look different? And sometimes I read that, and I'm like, I wish that was not the case. I wish God, why can't God just do it through a sermon? Like, why can't he just do it through a song? Why can't he just shout from the sky? Hey, I'm God and my son is Jesus and he was right. Like, why does it have to be unity among groups of people that would disagree about other things? And I think the answer is because the world can't find that kind of love anywhere else. So they know it must come from God. Unity is the only way Christians win this week. Look up here, ACC. Christians are not going to win or lose 
this week or however long it takes. There's people that think it could be a month or two before we really know who's going to be the president for the next four years. Don't let that excite you too much. Christians are going to win or lose this week, not based on who gets elected, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Christians are going to win or lose this week based on Christians who supported the candidate who loses, how they respond. That will be the only way the church stands out. Because when Christians show that their hope actually ended up bleeding over into other areas, it shows that the very thing that we're preaching doesn't actually work. When your unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ only depends on your ability to agree politically, you didn't have spiritual unity at all. And so I just want to challenge us right now. The most important priority for the way you handle this week is whether or not your heart and mind is set on unity with believers who are a part of a kingdom that you call home. And it's not anywhere on planet Earth, and it's definitely not the United States of America. It's called heaven. We're citizens there, and that's what matters the most. And in this, I want you to know that the peace that we want to make with other people begins in our own hearts. You know, the fight for peace in the world begins with the fight for peace in your heart and mind. And I, I, there's a guy that I follow who says this. He says, when Christians lose their minds, people lose their faith. That's 2020. I think the fight for unity has everything to do with the way Christians decide to treat this election. And when Christians are so loud that God would say this, God would do this, Jesus would back blank, I believe we completely miss it. Because the priority becomes an agenda, not love. And when the priority shifts from how do we get more people into the kingdom of heaven to how do we get the people we want to govern us in power so that blank. So, and even those so that's are good. So that morally we can have a leader who lines up with what we want as believers. So that economically we can have a system that we want to reflect what we want. Listen, having those wants is not a bad thing. But when those supersede your top priority being, how do we build and grow the kingdom of heaven? How do we make heaven more crowded? You're missing it. And so this is where I believe ACC could be a city on a hill. Because we could be a group of people who are actually not that caught up in watching to see the results of what happens this week. Yes, it matters. Not as much as reaching people for the gospel matters. And before you hear that and go, oh, that's such a cop out. That's such a, oh, just preach the gospel. No, no, no. We're going to deal with some issues. We're going to talk about real things before the end of this message that exists in each candidate's platform. But at the end of the day, those are issues in a platform. And what matters more are souls and people who could go to hell. And so you got to make that everything in your mind and heart. And as we're doing this, I just, I see so much of the church looking exactly like culture. that it's become painful to get in the news cycle or on social media. And so I wanted to just drop this line. You can write this down if you want to or if you've already checked out or walked out or tuned me out because of something I've said so far. I understand. It's 2020. <laughs> Church is called to be an alternative to culture, not a reflection of it. Church is called to be an alternative to culture, not a reflection of it. When what we're saying in here looks exactly like what's being projected out there, the world doesn't know the difference. 
And so we don't look as divisive. We don't look like our priorities are the same. And too many churches, and I believe too many people within the sound of my voice right now, have decided to reflect everything that's happening in culture and put a Jesus spin on it because we live in the Bible Belt instead of looking totally different as an exile, as a foreigner, and going, no, I live within this system, but this is not where my hope is. And this is not where my life is found. My life exists for a completely different mission and priority in the world. And so I want to be that alternative, and I want to stop fueling what we should be fighting. Read on in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I love this. Paul says, you got to remember, you were foreigners, you were strangers, you were away from God, and God brought you into his family. God gave you a new, what's the word? Citizenship. Now, Paul's writing this to the church in Ephesus, which is a Roman city. The only time Paul uses the adjective of citizenship is when he writes to the church at Ephesus and when he writes to the church at Philippi. It's because these two cities had a strong allegiance to their Roman citizenship. And what Paul's trying to jab at is he's trying to jab at their allegiance and go, hey, I know there are some things that are awesome about being a citizen of Rome. Here's the thing, though. You've been given a new citizenship. And here's the thing. As soon as you become a citizen of heaven, you actually become a foreigner and stranger in this world. So this says you were a foreigner and a stranger to God, and now he brought you in to become a citizen of heaven. But the inverse of that is also true. You found your home in the ways and things of this world, and now you become a foreigner and a stranger in this world. The byproduct of becoming a citizen of heaven is that you lose your citizenship in this world. And that's something that I think too many of us don't realize we signed up for when we said, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave. I believe you paid for my sins. Too many of us don't realize that, you know, you just became weird. You know what the Bible calls Christians? Exiles, foreigners, strangers, sojourners. It means to the rest of the world, we look like we are out of our minds. Even more so than the people who were loud singing the first two songs and what you thought about them today. Like, to the rest of the world, Christianity looks like a foreign language. It looks like, oh, you, you've got your hope somewhere else, but here's the problem. So many of us grew up in the Bible Belt, and we made our home spiritually in this bed that looks like a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of this party, and we'll do a prayer breakfast here, and we'll mix and match politics with spirituality, and some of it has, a, has beautiful effects, like our kids growing up in Christian schools, like our kids growing up believing that talking about Jesus is normal. Some of it is awesome. But one of the worst parts about living in the South is that a lot of our kids are going to grow up believing things that are normal in their world that are actually strange and weird and make them foreigners to the rest of the world. And so what we've got to be able to do, and I think this message plays differently, preaching it where I'm standing right now, rather than other regions in the United States, I think we got to take back our spirituality from Southern culture. I actually think too many of us have gotten caught up with this idea that the offices that I vote for should look like the God that I worship. That's not anywhere in there. In fact, overwhelmingly what you see is the opposite. 
When you read this book, what you should think about the offices that represent you is pretty much nothing but gratitude. And I, I know this message is not an easy one for you to receive, but I just actually believe that as soon as you realize how much you don't fit into this system, it frees you up to participate in this system in a healthy way. So Tim Keller, popular pastor in New York City, he's written more books than I can name, and he's brilliant. Every answer he gives to a question, it's like, oh, wow, I'm not smart. You just need to preach everything. He's amazing. When he was asked the question, how do Christians fit into a two-party political system in America? He's, he always gives these long, eloquent, brilliant answers. You want to know what his answer to that question was? They don't. How, how, do, how do Christians fit into this system? They don't. I think accepting that we cannot mix and match our faith with what's about to happen this week frees us up to participate this week in a way that's hands-off, in a way that's, I'm going I'm to do my part, and I'm going to believe in what I believe in, but at the end of the day, that stays there, and my hope stays here. And some of you haven't been able to do that because you don't realize how weird it is to be a Christian in this world. So I want you, I literally want you to walk in to vote, unless you've voted early, which it feels like the whole world is voting early this year. Um, but I want you to walk in and vote on Tuesday, and I want there to be a little bit of a smile on your face, like, hmm, this is weird. I don't belong here. You can even say it to yourself. Because I think, I think reminding yourself of where your identity lies and the activity that you're doing and separating those two things is healthy for your soul. I found that to be true in 2020. Like, I didn't realize until this year how much my identity was wrapped up in my performance as a preacher. And so when I didn't have a crowd to preach to every Sunday, I'm just talking to that camera every single week. It's actually really depressing and lonely. Um, there was a part of me that I felt like was dying. And I realized as we're starting to gather again that there's this unhealthy level of my identity that's gotten wrapped up with this activity that I've got to let God break me of. But it feels so healthy to do what I'm doing now, which is if you look at me right before I come on stage, I'm reminding myself of something that's true. And I'm saying to myself over and over again, this is what you do. This is not who you are. This is what you do. This is not who you are. And what I'm doing is I'm rehearsing in my head all of the things that are true about me without this microphone. And what that does for me is it frees me to step up here and say what God called me to say, but to let go with my identity. In other words, I'm not the result of how well I thought I performed today. I am the result of the work of Jesus. I'm a son of God. And I have all of my value and worth coming from him. And it frees me to do it in a way that doesn't become unhealthy for me. I think that's what you need to do on Tuesday. I think that's what you need to do as you post. If you post, please stop posting. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just don't think it works. I've never heard anybody say, I saw somebody's post. And it totally changed my mind about the way I relate to God and other people. I've just never heard anybody say anything like that. But I do think there needs to be a part of you that goes in on Tuesday that, that, that goes to see what happens and go, this is not who I am. I'm, I'm, I don't really fit in in this system. I'm going to participate, but I'm actually a citizen of heaven. So here's what I want to do with 10 minutes I got left. I want to give you five things that we're unified on. How do we be a diverse but not divided church? And these are five things that are absolutely non-negotiable for Christians in the room. If you're not a Christian and you're just listening into this message, this is a great truth for you to learn about us but these are true whether you consider yourself Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, whatever, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, wherever your background is. These five things we absolutely come together on. And these are the five things I want you holding on to more than the name of a candidate or an outcome that you want to see. 
Does this sound like a list that you want to hear? Okay, let's put those five things up there. Here's the five things that we are united under. We are one race with one problem and one solution and one source with one hope. And so the one race, this is what a lot of 2020 has been building toward that just needs to be said out loud. We are one race. Ephesians chapter 2 says Jesus built one new humanity out of the two. What is that new humanity? We are one race, the human race. Racism is actually a lie because the glory of God that was displayed in his image that was put on humanity was to reflect him perfectly. And the diversity of human beings only furthers the glory of God, especially when that diversity exists within a body that can agree on the fact that Jesus is the son of God, even if they disagree about everything else. We are one race, human. And this affects our opinions about platforms. Our opinions about platforms are not formed by preferences. They're formed by scripture. And scripture teaches that we are one new humanity, one race, human beings. And so as Christians, not as Republicans, not as Democrats, as Christians, we vehemently oppose any system that that perpetuates racism or oppression against the least. We vehemently oppose abortion and the murder of a baby in the womb. We defend the rights of the born and the unborn, the black and the white, the rich and the poor. Christians absolutely magnify the dignity of all human beings. And it's not about a political platform. It's about a biblical worldview. And so if any part of what you're doing this week compromises the dignity of a human being, you are off from what God has called you to do. And don't forget... Joe Biden and Donald Trump are human beings. This is the part that just makes everybody guilty. Because you hear both sides pointing at the other one going, you don't care about this side of humanity. You don't care about this side. But yet they're willing to viscerate the other candidate as if they are an animal. The way you talk about the candidate who you completely disagree with says a lot about what you believe about the dignity of humanity. And so there's a way to hold on to this and go, okay, I've got to be able to maintain a level of unity. We are one race, human. And in that, there's all kind of nuances and conversations that need to be had about systems and opinions about about taxation and about economic reform and about education reform, all that stuff. But listen, don't miss the overarching banner. Dignify human beings. So what should you do instead of try to convince people that you disagree with that your platform would work out better for them than what they believe? You should love them and make sure they walk away from communication with you knowing that they're seen and valued and validated. But Miles, I don't, I don't ever interact with anybody who disagrees with me. Well, there's your problem right there. We are one race, human. We have one problem, sin. Ephesians 2 is very clear about this. Read the beginning of it. We're dead in our sins. So the problem this week is not an economic or political agenda. The problem this week is not one person or the other person. The problem is mankind is sinfully broken and separated from a holy God because we fail to reflect the image of God perfectly. And when you know that sin is the problem, it allows you to take a stance. But it reminds you, we take stances on issues but we open our arms to people. So even as I said our stance on abortion earlier, I could feel the energy in this room of, yes, somebody needs to say it. 
There is genocide in our country in 2020. It needs to be said. It needs to be shouted. Christians absolutely oppose abortion. But if you're going to make a stance like that and not pair it with, yeah, but at the same time, we got to care about the system that led to a man and a woman feeling like that was a viable option, that led to this many kids being out there who need to be adopted, that led to a foster care system that's overrun and has all of these needs. You can't say you care about this issue but not have an actual structure that's going to support the building up. And so if the problem is sin, yes, we have opinions about issues. Yes, we take a stance on morality. There are things that our current president has chosen to say and do that we as Christians absolutely have to reject. There are things in the platform of his opponent that you absolutely, as a Christian, have to reject. And so you're like, how do, I, how do I maintain a level of doing both of those things and pick a side? Here's what I'm saying. Don't pick a side. Stay weird. Stay a citizen of heaven. Vote according to your convictions, but let go of your hope being set in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else. If the problem is sin, it means whoever gets elected is a broken sinner. And I just want to say, honestly, being as real as I can, this normally doesn't happen until later in the services. I don't believe that either of the men who have had their names down to become the next president of the United States for the next four years, I don't believe that either of them have a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that they would. I pray that they will. But here's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the most powerful office in the world being held by somebody who desperately needs Jesus. So what should that make you do? That should make you pray that they find Jesus more than you criticize what they're missing in your mind. That should make you pray for revival. Whether it's one or the other, I don't really care. I hope they get a vision of Jesus and wake up to what life is truly all about because that's the real problem. And that's the real problem that we're relating to in the world. That's the real problem I want you speaking into. That's the real problem I want you posting about. Once again, if you post at all, um, I got to hurry up. One solution. You know this one. You can, you can put Savior with this one. Because if you have a problem that's in, you need more than a solution. You need a Savior. His name is Jesus. And Jesus has a very aggressive kingdom he's trying to build on planet Earth. Read the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus did not come to participate in our systems and be a feel-good version of internal peace to sustain us through this world. He came to build a kingdom that is absolutely taking over every other kingdom on planet Earth. And it's his name and his renown that is our passion this week. And so the question I want on your mind is, am I exalting the name of Jesus above all names? Something I did not even realize until this morning. You guys know the headline of our church is Jesus Wins. It's the headline over all humanity. We say it all the time. It's literally right there. Do you want to know how I came up for the idea behind that sermon series? It happened because of the presidential election in 2000 when there was a cover of a newspaper that said Bush wins when George W. Bush beat Al Gore. But it was when the recount happened. And so this newspaper headline caught all this attention because it was like, did he? I don't know. Florida's got to do it all over again. We'll see. And that just kind of caught my attention. Bush wins. And I just had this thought. And you're like, the year 2000? How old were you? I was in fifth grade. Um, and, and so I had this thought of like, man, if, if like all of humanity had a newspaper and the front cover had a headline that covered the lead story of everything that's ever happened, what would be written there? And we believe that headline would read loud and clear, Jesus wins. And here's what I want you to get excited about. I believe that his fame will spread regardless of the outcome of this election. Let's just call it what it is. If our president is reelected, more likely than not, there will be riots in the streets of our country. 
there will be massive groups of people who weep for probably not just days, but weeks and months. There will be anger. There will be hurt, unlike anything we've probably ever seen in our lifetime. On the other side of that, if our president doesn't get reelected, we will have someone in the highest office of this country who vehemently opposes direct doctrines that are written in the Bible. And so you hear that as a Christian, and you're all, all of a sudden all of you are like, oh, wow, he just told me what he really thinks about stuff. Guys, this is not that hard to figure out, okay? This is what we're, what we're reading about right now. The great thing about both of those things is both of those broken roads end in hopelessness. And so at the end of the day, I'm going, the church is about to get an opportunity to stand up and stand out either way. The church is about to get to do what the church is called to do, which is bring hope to a lost, dark, and broken world. So bring on President Trump for four more years or bring on a new president, Joe Biden. Either way, Jesus' name is going to be magnified in and through my life. And so, by the way, I believe that the local church has the capacity to change the world more than anybody in an office. And I actually believe our belief that Jesus is the Savior and Jesus is the solution of mankind's real problem, which is sin, I believe that belief is going to stand out for the next four years, 40 years, 400 years, or however long it takes for Jesus to come back to planet Earth and build his kingdom on the Earth because he's going to. And so I want to be a part of that. So what do I want you to do this week? I want you to be more focused on how you are kingdom building, capital K, not your kingdom, not his kingdom or that person, no, Jesus and let's draw people into the only eternal kingdom. Number four, we got one source. I threw this one in at the last second, but I think it needs to be said. One source, scripture. Yeah. My gosh, y'all, please open your Bible more than you open Fox News or CNN this week. <laughs> please. More than you open social media. And it's funny that we would all agree with that and then spend like five minutes looking at a couple verses before we spend five hours filling our minds with division and loud hate and anger. The, re the reason why I want you to do that is not just because I'm a pastor. The reason why I want you to do that is because everything you read in this book is true. Everything you're seeing on the news, very, very little. And I want to have respect to journalism. And I'm praying that God raises up some journalists with integrity for the future. Everything you're seeing, you have no idea if it's true. So why would you spend your time filling your mind and heart with things that may or may not be true when you've got the truth of all of the universe in the palm of your hand? If we got one source and it's the scriptures, let's let that be our source more than anything else we are reading about this week. And by the way, you'll find some peace there. You'll sleep really well reading this book rather than reading their articles. Last one, best one of all. Let's just recap. One race. Human, say it with me. One problem, sin. One solution, Jesus. One source, scripture. Last one, one hope, resurrection. Our hope is in another world because we are citizens of another world. If it feels weird for somebody to be more excited about heaven than we are excited about right here, then we've been missing something in our Christianity. Our hope is in being raised from the dead by Jesus and spending eternity in a real place with real bodies. And so I just want to shift our focus in this moment right now and read a verse to you that's very similar to the ones we just read. You're in Ephesians. This is over in Philippians chapter 3, and it brings a culmination to everything I've said so far in this sermon. Paul wrote, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This verse is so beautiful. I asked my wife last week, I was like, 
is, is Ephesians 2, 8, your favorite verse in the entire Bible? And she was like, it's top five, but no. Philippians 3.20 is number one. Our citizenship is in heaven. I want you to be clear about where your hope lies this week. And your hope lies in a resurrected Savior who has, look at this, the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Jesus has the power to grab control over all governments and this entire planet anytime he wants to. In fact, the planet actually sits in the palm of his hand. He is at the right hand of God. But what is Jesus going to choose to do with his power? transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. In other words, Jesus' priority more than eliminating all the current powers and replacing them with himself is to resurrect your body and bring you with him as he does that. The gospel is so beautiful. And your hope at the end of the day more than it just doesn't need to be aimed at anything government or election-wise. It can't be aimed at any idol or framework outside of a resurrected body in heaven forever. Because every single human being on this planet right now and every single person in this room will one day run out of breath in your sinful body. But if you have Jesus living on the inside of you, you will be resurrected to live forever in the life that is truly life. That's why I'm up here telling you this loudly and passionately. And that's why there are people around you right now who are praying for the day that you stop aiming your hope in whatever you're hoping in today. You can put your notes away. I want to stand up all over this room. And I want us to sing a song of hope over our church and over our country before we leave today. But I do want to ask that if you're here in this moment and you know that your hope has been placed somewhere else or in something else, that you will come around the priorities of God as a citizen of heaven. Would you bow your head all over this space? Heavenly Father, I pray for those in this room right now who needed a wake-up call to what your kingdom is truly all about. I pray in the name of Jesus that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray that you would find Auburn Community Church faithful, not faithful to the Republican or Democratic Party, not faithful to raising our voices loudly to promote more division. No, I pray that you find us faithful to loving and serving you above anything or anyone else. God, would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? Would you show us real people more than you develop in us passions for policies? And God, would you somehow provide a united church that can disagree politically, that can vote in different directions, but that can stand united under the banner that Jesus is the king over all of the universe and Jesus is the one who we serve and Jesus is the one that we sing to. So I pray right now as we sing this song that the very words that we're singing would actually come true through our church in the coming days. Would you heal our land, God? People are hurting And this whole world seems like it's burning down, disconnected from you. Would you come in power and would you do it through us? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's sing together.